Father, we embark on our weekly endeavor of worship, bowing before you with our Bibles open, asking that your spirit would be our tutor, that he would instruct us, and as he bears witness with your truth, that he would show us in our lives any lack of conformity to your word, that we would be convicted there, that we would be equipped to lead lives of grateful service to our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We ask that as you meet us in your word, that you would help us not to be merely informed, but transformed through the working of your Spirit and our application of this Scripture in our lives this day and this week. We pray in the matchless name of Christ. Amen. Christianity is based on revelation. Every means to find God through man-made efforts is vain and only produces false religions or mysticisms. So in essence, it's a matter of submission. Submission either to His revelation of Himself or our imagination. We either rely solely on the divine influence over our minds or the amassing of propositions and theses and traditions. You might say a mix of philosophy, psychology, and theology. The Apostle Paul comes alongside the church at Colossae and he warns them. He gives them a warning that is pertinent for our day in which we live in 2014. In Colossians 2, he says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and empty traditions after the rudimentary principles of the world and not after Christ, for in Him dwelleth all the Godhead bodily in Christ. He warns of the danger of being taken captive through man's philosophy and empty deception. And as we are turning to Psalm 19, we looked at God's glory revealed in His world, verses 1 through 6. And as we look at what the psalmist records for us about His written word, I think that it's important for us to lay the foundation for what David is going to speak into our lives this morning. That the church is is full of lots of philosophy today. One particular form is mysticism. Basing theology on experience rather than Christ as He's revealed Himself in Scripture. The church is filled with pragmatism. Determining truth by whatever works. Just this past week, I saw another survey put together by another church, a First Baptist church of another locale, as their pastor is getting ready to leave and they're trying to amass to themselves what kind of equations make the right pastor for their congregation. And rather than Uh, pursuing biblical qualifications and the direction that the Scriptures give on a shepherd, what do individuals want in a pastor? 
church is filled with mysticism. The church is filled with pragmatism. The church is filled with asceticism. The self-made religion that God is somehow impressed by us depriving our bodies. And if God just looks at how much, how much time and energy and stuff we give up for Him, He'll be pleased. How much of the church is filled with legalism? I know nobody here thinks they're a legalist and nobody ever thinks they're a legalist. Even the Pharisees Yet scores of people who call themselves Christians are majoring on the minors. They're living for shadows rather than substance. The externals rather than strengthening the inner man and scriptural conformity to the image of Christ. And nothing has so infiltrated the church and assaulted the sufficient word more than psychology. That's why I'm so thrilled to hear about many and their renewed interest in biblical counseling, which is no standalone, set-aside, professionalized ministry of the church. It's what the church is. It is discipleship 101 or sanctification 101. It is doing what Jesus said in making disciples. It is doing what Paul instructed Timothy, committing to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Counsel should take place in the context of a healthy church, equipping people on how to meet real life issues with the Word of God. You know, we're one week away from Reformation Sunday, a celebration of the recovery of the gospel. And the linchpin of the Reformation was sola scriptura, only the Scriptures. So instead of Judaism's dependence on oral tradition and the Talmud, and against papal ex-cathedra and legends or dogmas, or superstitions or venerations of saints and angels, stood the conviction in the Reformation of sola scriptura. So that rather than the infallible voice of the church, there is the voice of God called Holy Scripture. We must commit ourselves to the conviction that Scripture is all-sufficient for everything man needs for life and godliness. God is glorified in His world as His creation is constantly narrating His glory through a wordless communication incessantly day in, day out. But God is also glorified in the Word by ministries that are Bible-driven. Dear saint, God is glorified as you submit absolutely to the sufficient Scripture in all areas of life. God is glorified. We began in Psalm 19, verse 1. Last week, we sang some of this psalm in response to us recognizing last week that this was written for the choir director so that as the saints get ready for worship, they can rehearse God's truth and reiterate it back to Him. He says that the heavens are telling the glory of God. 
their expanse declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, nor are their words, their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he's placed a tent for the sun, which as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, it rejoices like a strong man to run his race, or his course, excuse me. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from the heat. So we recognize God is glorified in His world. But notice what the psalmist continues on by specifying that that, uh, He's glorified in His Word as well. That the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true, they are righteous altogether. They're more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Equip me of hidden faults. Also, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I'll be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. We won't be able to finish the psalm today because I just got lost in study and we might get through just a few of these verses from verses 7 on. But we see a marked shift from natural revelation to special revelation. From wordless communication to written words. This is the voice of God that He has supremely chosen to reveal Himself and to communicate with man in a clear and sufficient way. We've noted already last week the poetic brilliance of this psalm. We've noted the theological clarity of Psalm 19. And here the psalmist goes on to the nth degree to show forth the Lord's perfections. This is one of three psalms showing forth the will of God. The Psalter starts off in Psalm 1 with the same manner in which God is glorified in His Word. He spends all in Psalm 119 unpacking the glories of God's greatness revealed in His communication through His Word. Both who He is and what we should be. So as David muses on God's grace and His kind revelation, that's what we ought to do, he expresses gratitude for the Word. That word which equips us to lead lies for His glory. We probably won't get much beyond point one of the sermon this morning. Gratitude expressed objectively by focusing on the attributes of the word, verses 7 and 8. Now, step back for just a moment. I, I trust that in, in conversing with several among the congregation, I know many of you, like me, get a bit frustrated when you talk with somebody about biblical truth and their response to you is, well, that's just your interpretation. Been there? Yeah, you've been there. I see it written all over your face. Such a, such a statement 
reveals that they do not comprehend that Scripture is an absolute standard with one cohesive message, only one, and it's only, there's only one interpretation, only one meaning in any given passage, and since it's God's revelation and God's message, whose interpretation ought, ought we to concern ourselves with? His. It is... Uh, you know, I, I trust that our, our study this morning will lead you into a, some more confidence in the objective certainty of knowing what God means by what He says. We derive what He means by what He says on the pages before us with the words, the phrases, the construction of how various writers of Scripture put it together. The historical grammatical interpretation is what we ought to concern ourselves with, that, that uh, different authors of Scripture were written in a very real historical circumstance. Many of them are addressing issues like I, I referred to Colossians 2 in the introduction of the sermon this morning. Paul was writing to a necessity that must, needed to be addressed. And they not only wrote to a history, but with words, grammar. Words, structures. So, as we get to just about one point of the sermon this morning, let's look at the three parts of speech that the psalmist uses. The nouns, the adjectives, and the verbs. Now, unless you think that uh, uh, I, I, I'm uh, grading essays again like I do for, uh, for school... I don't want this to be a mere academic exercise for us. It cannot, when we study Scripture, it cannot just be cerebral. It must be life-transforming as your confidence grows that I know what God means by what He has said. We're going to look at various words that are, there is even more in Psalm 119. A more expanded section with more synonyms or words with similar meanings. But what we've got here in this psalm are six lines that are parallel. That's the beauty of Hebrew poetry. Not expressing distinction, but another aspect. Scripture is a multifaceted orb, kind of like a diamond. So some of these nuances, some of these words, some of these phrases overlap as they blend together into a cohesive whole. But just six lines with three parts. We are given various titles of the word, various attributes of the word, and various effects of what the word produces in the life of the worshiper. Six titles, six characteristics, Six benefits. We cannot exhaust them. We will not look at all uh, six and six is twelve plus six, eighteen. At all eighteen points here. So, letter A. How about the nouns? When when David talks about God's communication, he says he addresses it as the law of the Lord, the Torah. This is the comprehensive term for God's revealed will. It is God's Word on how to live. It's not just a bunch of religious insights. It is absolute law on behavior for a life that leads to maximum blessing. You, you veer off from this course, 
God's not honored. God's not glorified. But you keep on the straight and narrow, the way of wisdom leads to maximum benefit and blessing in life. So it is absolute law that is perfect, restoring the soul. He says that it's testimony, another noun, testimony. This aspect emphasizing that it is truth attested about God, or attested by God Himself. You remember when John in his first epistle in 1 John 5, 9 says, the testimony of God is greater than whose? The testimony of man. God trumps every time. If God says it, take it to the bank. This is also the term for His covenant declaration. In uh, Exodus, when, uh, when we've got uh, the ark going throughout the uh, wilderness with the people of God, it was the ark of the testimony. People whom God entered into relation, covenant relationship with. And so, contained therein were the tablets of the covenant or the testimony. God's word is law. God's word is testimony. He says it is, it's precepts and it's command. Word indicates precision and authority. When God addresses His creation, His creatures, He speaks as Creator. Speaks of authority. He gives us statements that are true, statements that are propositions, statements that are doctrine. Statements that are commands. So we need to understand that the Bible is mandated, is non-negotiables, it's not full of a bunch of speculations or suggestions. Notice how he, uh, to, to push the envelope a bit further, calls God's communication ordinances or judgments. The Hebrew term mishpatim. These are the judicial decisions that he has record, recorded about various human situations. So together, these nouns, these terms, show the practical purpose of revelation. Why did God communicate? Why did God give us the Bible? Why has God given the law and the testimony, the precepts, the command, the ordinances, the judgments? It is to bring God's will to bear upon our lives. It is to bring insight into various human situations. So that as we hear Him speak, so we do. So we submit. It's so that it would evoke an intelligent response from us based on well-founded trust and detailed obedience, bringing, bringing every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So that as God speaks and as we hear, we are informed and change accordingly. We see the various synonymous nouns in which the psalmist records but would you notice also the adjectives? What he says about this communication. He says that God's law is what perfect. There ought to be an exclamation point there. You ought to pull out, I guess my highlighters I just stuck in my computer bag. There ought to be the highlighter. You ought to underscore. 
It is perfect. The term tamim is used back in Psalm 18 and verse number 30 when he says, as for God, His way is blameless. There's the word perfect. It's perfect. It's flawless. Flawless wisdom, flawless love, flawless power. And only His flawless word, His flawless communication can make His servants blameless without reproach. And yet, it's not just that aspect of flawlessness that the psalmist is addressing here, but completeness. Underscore that in your notes. Perfection speaks to completion. It is all-sided. This is God's final word on everything. Everything we need to know about everything we need to know, in other words, if you add to the completion, what in fact you're saying is that it's not sufficient, we need more. It's not what God says. God says it's complete, it's perfect, the way I delivered it. Or to put it in Pauline language, when Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans 12 and verse number 2, he helps us understand that only the Word keeps you from conforming to the world and yet transforms you completely, not just on the outside as some sort of behavior modification, but beginning in the heart, changing our thought patterns. And as we change our thought patterns where the battle is lost or won, then you prove what is God's good and acceptable and perfect will. There's our term. Perfect will of God accomplished by obedience to the perfect Word of God. Only the Word of God is whole. Only the Word of God is complete. Only the Word of God is sufficient. Only the Word of God lacks nothing. This is His comprehensive message for man. And as His Son, in general revelation, goes from one end of the sky to the other, declaring His glory, so that all man everywhere knows that there is no Creator God, so the Scriptures address the issues of life for this part of God's creation, merely man. It's perfect. And you'll notice that he also gives us another adjective to describe this law, these precepts, the testimony. The testimony that God gives, it's sure. It is that which is confirmed. This, is, this term is used by Moses in uh, Genesis 42.20 and it's translated in uh, my English Bible before me as verified. God's Word, when He says it's sure, it's verified. It's reliable. It's trustworthy. It needs nothing. Peter, when he writes his second epistle, though he experienced up on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus pulling back His flesh and revealing God's glory, though He experienced it, though He saw it, He heard the thunderous words from heaven, He says we have a more sure word that trumps personal experience that we can misinterpret. He says these precepts, or, or this testimony is sure. This more sure word. 
These statutes are neither unstable nor fallible. They are unwavering. They are immovable. Let me throw in a freebie. When we say this, when we say what David says here, we're saying that Scripture validates itself. God puts His own stamp of approval on His Word. What's our pull away? What's our application? That uh, uh, God's Word stands in judgment on everything else. It does not bow to science. It does not bow to man's logic or anything else that you would want to parade before it and compare it to. It's not like the shifting sands all around us. God's commands cause us to stand firm to the extent that we are brought in conformity to it. They are sure. Verse 80 says that these precepts are right. Meaning morally right or straight. That is to say that they lay out the proper path through the intricate complexities of life, steering us to the right course. You know life is tough. Life is difficult. Life gets complicated. And it's only the Word of God that can help us navigate life in such a way that brings God's supreme glory through it. But it's like a compass in the pocket that won't direct you unless you take it out and examine it. It is like a tool that must be used according to its designed purpose. I could fill in so many illustrations of the misuse of tools here, it would stagger you. So we must be studying it in context as to how to administer the Word to life situation with precision, with its own authority, lest you remove God's authority by taking it out of context. You know, what we do in, in classes of hermeneutics is teach people how to unpack the Word of God. What do we do in biblical counseling training? We, un, we help people exegete not just the Word, but exegete the events of life and how to bring the Word to bear upon those situations and to be worded up. They are right. They establish rightness. Notice that uh, the psalmist also tells us that this communication given by God is pure. Uh, and to use David's own commentary on himself, since Scripture interprets Scripture, back in the 12th Psalm, in Psalm 12, in verse number 6, where he's praying to God, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift up yourself against the rage of my adversaries. Arouse yourself for me. You have appointed judgment. He contrasts God's words with words of man. And I have no idea what chapter I just read because it was the wrong one. If I just follow my notes... In Psalm 12 and verse 6, we're told the words of the Lord. Now, that's truth, too, that we just read unintentionally. 
But in Psalm 12, 6, the words of the Lord are pure words. There's our term, pure words. As silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. So in contrast to worldly wisdom and worldly words is God's Word that's gone through a purifying process, a smelting process seven different times. Exceptionally pure. In contrast to the words of men who speak idly, they speak in a flattering way, they give words from a divided heart, they speak proud things. God's Word is so pure and so radiant that His words give light to the eyes. Let me say it this way. The Bible is not filled with dark mysteries. But it's clear and lucid. Mark it down. God says, my word is pure. It's clear. But it's, I don't stutter. I don't stammer. I don't speak in mysteries. Now, are some things difficult and hard to understand? Yeah, uh, Peter said that about Paul. Are there mysteries with God? Yes, the secret things belong to the Lord. Deuteronomy 29.29 29. He has revealed and He's spoken in a clear, lucid way. This is the clarity of Scripture. It is clear. Difficult? Yes. Time-consuming to unpack what God means by what He says? Yes. But clear. The clarity of Scripture shines so brightly, revealing God's truth to enlighten everyone who follows in obedient faith. To put it in the, the psalmist, in other words, in Psalm 119.105, a verse that many of you might have memorized, when he looks at God's Word, he says, Thy Word is a lamp to my feet, and it's a light to my path. It shows me how to navigate the pathway of life without tripping over the roots and the potholes and the stumblings. They're lamp and light for the life's traveler. English nonconformist Puritan Thomas Watson said, Scripture is a beam of the sun of righteousness. So unlike the sun, S-U-N, which is constant wordless communication, we've got the Son of Righteousness who penetrates our soul and shows us how to navigate life. Now, we must admit when we say this that uh, yes, there is such a thing as spiritual blindness in the world. Deadness of the soul limits Scripture's clarity. Man does suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. When you preach the good news, many people will respond, respond that, to, that, that uh, it's foolishness. But to us, it's grown precious. It's precious. That's what David's going to get at in a moment. But it, it, it enlightens us. We can see truth in a dark world, as the writer of Proverbs says in Proverbs 6.23, the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching, light. And the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. You know, a Christian who comes to the Word as precious to them, 
who doesn't see it as a bunch of mysteries, but as God's communication to His people, we see the way life really is. We don't just look at the physical, but we recognize that man, yes, has a physical body, but man has a living soul. Man is a living soul. We're enlightened to that way of thinking about life. Again, in Psalm 119, verse number 52, he says, I've remembered your ordinance from of old, O Lord, and comfort myself. Notice that reminder of God's truth is what brought the comfort to his soul. Verse 59, I consider my ways and turned my feet to your testimonies because my feet were going off the path. Verse 81, my soul languishes for your salvation. I wait for your word. That's where his confidence was. In verse 92 of Psalm 119, if your law had not been my delight, then I would have perished in my affliction. How often have you gone to the word of God in your devotions, your heart sunk, and you get a freshness breathed into your soul by God's truth, which doesn't return to Him void. It'll accomplish the purpose that He sent it forth. Going back to Psalm 19, he says that this communication from God is true. Literally, it is truth in a sense of dependability. The Bible does not wait for and depend upon science to catch up to it, to confirm and authenticate it. We could think of scores of examples in the uh, creationist debate as to things that people used to think were science, they found out was not science. How that Scripture is in absolute harmony with any true science. Scripture does not wait for man to get caught up on his game before it speaks. You had mentioned several kind of philosophies that have crept into the church unawares that the Apostle Paul warns the Colossians about. And I'd mentioned that one of those that I am so concerned about is that philosophy of psychology. There is a new edition of the Diagnostic and Statistics Manual, which is used to diagnose mental illness. Matter of fact, when I went from my sleep study on on Monday night, some of the things that would be found on the DSM uh, uh, were on there, and I started thinking, oh, study. So uh, Parker's checking in for uh, mental illness. Well, back in 1952, when the first DSM came out, it was created to give us a system of language. Uh, it's a series of constructs for new kinds of problems. Problems that are very real, issues of life, complex, difficult. To provide a category for these serious issues that overwhelm people, but for which there is no pathology. Here's the crux of the problem, beloved. When I go to the doctor, the medical doctor, excuse me, I'll clarify. I expect him to help me with this 
ailing body, this tent that Paul calls the body, whether he has to run blood tests or biopsies, core samples from the muscles, or x-rays or MRIs to validate a true authentic medical disease. The wrong assumption that many people have bought into is mental illness on the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual, which has gone through five revisions now, which was thought to be science, more science than it is. They are characterized by the same level of precision as cancer. That's the misconception. If your doctor, your oncologist comes to you and says, Dear sir, dear ma'am, your diagnosis is cancer. They have run the tests. And when they say that you've got cancer, there is a mass of cells that divides and multiplies at a rapid and uncontrollable rate. Concrete evidence of pathology, which medical science is driven by. However, in much of the DSM psychological world, based not on pathology, it is based on committee vote. Whether it be 15 psychologists getting together to vote on whether or not we ought to change the definition. Here's what's so hard when you try to come alongside and help people who have been labeled with mental illness is that you don't know what you're dealing with. Because they don't even know what they're dealing with. You try to go for definitions by the, what, what would be known as the professionals, and there is no standard definition. So they base it on, not on pathology, but on committee vote. Second of all, they don't, don't base it on pathology, but on subjective behavior descriptions. And thirdly, and most concerning, ought to be to the cautious thinking Christian, ought to be that not only is it not based on pathology, but on moral behaviors. Most of them on the DSM form that are described by God. So whether it be gender identity disorder, worry, ADHD, they have medicalized moral problems, and that is of great concern. They have spoken up where God has already spoken. Before the medicalized label of ADHD came along, I was diagnosed by one of my grandfather by a different acronym, BRAT, that the Bible expresses. I think that much of what is going on in the world today in trying to help people, not question the motives here, but they are lacking in hope. Yet God's truth is hope-giving. It is life-transforming. God addresses everything that needs to be addressed in life so that we might lead lives that glorify Him. Going back to Psalm 19, I love how simply Derek Kidner writes in his Psalms commentary. He says, In all... These epithets move in a different world from the compromise, insincerity, and half-truths of human intercourse, unquote. 
We've seen different nouns, different synonymous terms the psalmist uses for God's communication, which is His infallible Word. He describes it in several different ways. But these six characteristics are not just meant for the cerebral, for our information, but for our transformation, which leads us to the verbs. You study a passage of Scripture, you look at the verbs, you know where the action is. You know what's going on. You start to read God's law, His testimony, His precepts, His commandment, His judgments. And you're not just reading a book. You're reading a book that's reading you. You're reading a book that dissects your problems and, and brings the Word to bear upon it. This is the only book in your library that when you read it, it reads you. The writer of Hebrews fills in this idea when he addresses the Word of the living God. The, uh, I should clarify the living Word of the living God. And in Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13, he says that there's no creature hidden from his sight. All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. This is the Word of God. That which is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It goes where we can't go. No creature hidden from its sight. As the sun races across the sky and exposes everyone to the elementary knowledge of God in general revelation, this book thunders the voice of God with who He is and what He expects. And He thunders it deep to the soul. So you notice some of the verbs He uses, what this does, this living Word. For one, and most importantly, it brings salvation. It is salvific. You can go out in God's creation and contemplate your navel till you bling in the face. You can look at all the color. You can be amazed at the brilliance of climate change. You can watch the sun and be amazed and know that God exists, that somebody hung the stars there. But through that general message, you cannot be saved. You can simply respond in obedience and faith. When you go out in your evangelism, you can introduce people who know that there's a God to the saving God of Scripture. David says here in the text that this law, which is perfect, restores the soul. Maybe your translation renders it revives the soul. I think the best translation is converting the soul. It's a salvific term. A reminder that general re- revelation doesn't save anybody because there's no clear message of how to become rightly related to the holy God that created me for His glory of which I fall far short. When it's used back in, uh, uh, or, or ahead in the shepherd's psalm in Psalm 23.3, it might picture a straying sheep brought back in a salvific way. Or maybe in Isaiah's picture, Isaiah 49.5, or perhaps Psalm 60, verse 1, which uses the same verb and is often translated repent. The message preached 
The same message that Jonah delivered to Nineveh that he was so mad because when he preached the message of repentance, they actually repented. This is speaking not just of spiritual refreshment, but spiritual renewal. Not refreshment, but regeneration. Yeah. In 1 Peter 1 and verse 3, in recollecting the saints' conversion, he says, you were born again, not of seed which perishes, but imperishable through the living and enduring Word of God. Why was it that Paul was not ashamed of his message of the gospel preached? And Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's that message that's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. God's message will produce salvation. God's message goes further. How can it go further than salvation? Sanctification. Notice that scripture, the Scriptures don't just bring a person to salvation and then drop them. Sink or swim, baby. Figure out this Christianity for your own. But it sanctifies us. The psalmist says that uh, they are righteous altogether at the end of verse 9. Righteous altogether. This adverb simply means together. It can be used in a, in a causative fashion that this is what it produces. So it's not just a characteristic of the word, but what it accomplishes in our lives. What it brings about. It will bring about complete righteousness. This is God's tool of sanctification. God's Spirit using His sword to carve away everything that's not Christ-like. When Paul writes to Timothy about the church and how the church operates, he says that all Scripture is breathed out by God, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Why? That we might be adequately equipped. Made righteous altogether. And as David instructed that his sure testimony makes wise the simple... Hebrew term for simple comes from a root word meaning an open door. When the Bible addresses people who are simple, that's not used as some uh, mean child uses, oh, you're just simple with all the venom and animosity behind it. It's not what God's saying. Simply shut an open door. One who's gullible to false teaching. One who doesn't discriminate. Doctrine does discriminate. Don't be naive. Don't be uninformed. Be informed. Don't be an open door, just like my garage door when it was open the other day so that any stray leaf blew in without restraint. This simply speaks of one who fails to shut their mind to error. No filter on their mind. Like a revolving door to the mind, no discernment. And only Scripture accomplishes Wisdom. Only Scripture will make you wise or skillful in the issues of life. Turn over to 1 Thessalonians 2 for a moment for Paul's mini-commentary on this. 
Remember the Thessalonians and their reception of the Word? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse number 13, he says, For this very reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the Word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of man, but for what it really is, the Word of God which also performs its work in you who believe. You received it. You were teachable. You responded biblically in obedient faith. And you received this not as man's mechanical message, but God's message which works in you, which shapes your life, which helps you make right choices which helps you see things as they really are. You know, as David contemplated this, it brought him to biblical prayers that we ought to emulate. If we want God's Word to have its effect, not only in salvation, but in sanctification, maybe we could borrow some of David's prayers when he says in Psalm 119, verse 27, Make me understand the way of your precepts, so I'll meditate on your wonders. Over in verse 34 of 119, give me understanding. To, to ask God for understanding is to admit that we don't have the understanding that we need. That I would observe your law and keep it with all my heart. How often have we prayed, James 1, 5, God give me wisdom. And yet, not opened our Bibles to get that. David continues on in verse 66. God, teach me good discernment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. You might his prayers be ours. So we see these characteristics of God's written. Revelation, His Word. His Word which is sufficient. Next week we want to contemplate some of the realities of our response to this. But as we conclude, and try to zero once in on a handle of application to take with us to meditate on today and the next days till we come back to Psalm 19. My question is, if we have a completed canon of 66 books all telling the same story, which sources God Himself, it's inspired by Him, and it's without error, it's all sufficient to both save and to sanctify by Why the substitutions? Why are we substituting man's fallen wisdom, which is unenlightened and empty? And not only why substitutions, why, why additions? Relying on other means and taking out blunt instruments that are not the sharp two-edged sword but are mere butter knives. Why the substitutions? Why the additions? Why the deletions, beloved? By not preaching the whole counsel of God verse by verse. Sola Scriptura affirms that all truth necessary for our salvation our spiritual life is either taught explicitly or implicitly in Scripture. It contains everything necessary 
Everything binding on our consciences and everything God requires of us, period. No deletions, no additions. No weights forced on us externally by man. I, I, I love the, the, the way the 39 articles of the Anglican Church state it. They say in Article 6, Whatsoever is not read therein, nor may, nor may be proved therein, is not to be required of any man. That ends the story. Salvation, true life, skill for living are all provided by Scripture. Clear thinking, our worship manual. So I urge you to meditate on these descriptions of the sufficiency of God's written revelation which go far beyond what natural revelation does. Scripture alone leads to life eternal. Scripture alone imparts wisdom for skilled living. Scripture alone sets the route before us. Scripture alone brings clarity rather than confusion bringing eternity into sharp, riveting focus. Scripture alone compels believers to worship as a constantly up-to-date worship manual. And Scripture alone produces a comprehensive righteousness. We need only to study and obey what we have in the all-sufficient Word pointing to our all-sufficient Christ. Would you join me in prayer? Our God, we bow before you still asking you to enlighten our hearts, to bring to bear David's words upon our heart, because his words are your words. Build more of a conviction, a settled conviction on the sufficiency of Scripture, because we know that a settled conviction will show itself, it will manifest itself in lives that are altogether righteous. Help us to lead lives to the glory of our Creator God, who has brought us into fellowship through faith in His Son. We pray for any that would be with us who do not know the Savior, that you'd give us opportunity to take the Word of God, which gives the message of salvation, about Christ, who lived the perfect life that we could not, who gave His life as a substitutionary atonement for sinners, who died the death that we deserved, was raised out of your satisfaction and is seated at your right hand, interceding for us. We praise you for the message that was proclaimed in our lives that we responded to in faith. Give us opportunities this week to present that message of the gospel, that we'd be not ashamed, and help us to live of gospel sufficiency this week, that as the Word exposes our sin, we'd be quick to forsake it, complete in our confession that we'd even come to the Lord's table next week, Rightly related to you, rightly related to others, that we might fellowship with each other at your table. Do the work that only your spirit can do in our lives. We pray that in your matchless name. Amen.